Hello, and welcome to the Digital Health Leaders Podcast, where we bring the best of the best in digital health leadership to you. I'm Russ Branzell, President and CEO of the College of Healthcare Information Management Executives, or CHIME, and the host of this podcast. These are truly unprecedented times for our industry and our healthcare leaders. These leaders are doing everything they can to support our frontline caregivers and guide their organizations through some of the most tumultuous times in modern history. Today, we have one of those special leaders with us. Today, we have a special, special guest, a dear personal friend of mine uh, for many, many years now. He has been so involved in our community. He has been so active in making sure we have what we need in this industry. He's served on the Chime board. He's been a board chair of our organization. He's been on our public policy front. He is truly one of the hardest working people in healthcare. Uh, we've all heard that hardest working person in show business. No, he's the hardest working person in healthcare. He gives and gives and gives and gives. I've never heard this person ever say no. It is without any doubt whatsoever. We wish and uh, welcome one of our dear friends, Randy McLeese, who's currently serving as the CIO at Twin Lakes Medical Center in Litchfield, Kentucky, to our program. Welcome, Randy. Thank you, Ross. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, share some thoughts and uh, we can talk about the way things are in the industry in the rural communities of the country, at least in Kentucky. Well, you know, for multiple reasons, Kentucky is one of my favorite places in the world. Those don't need to necessarily go mentioned here. But, um, you know, how are you and your family? And I know you've got deep roots there in Kentucky uh, doing and in, in, in your organization you're with now uh, doing during these difficult times. Well, everything seems to be going fairly smoothly, uh, you know, in these difficult times, especially, and I know we're talking about COVID and the pandemic and, and the things that have affected us here, but uh, here in the rural areas, I don't think we've been hit as hard as the uh, some of the more urban areas. Uh, we're about an hour south of Louisville, so we hear a lot of stories and things that are happening in around Louisville, and, uh, you know, the the infection rates there. Uh, we hear the daily uh, report from the governor on the infection rates and the number of uh, positive cases of COVID, the number of deaths. Uh, early on in the March-April timeframe, uh, the local community here was hit a little bit hard. Uh, and when I say hard, because I think we had some of the earlier cases of, of COVID and some of the earlier hospitalizations here at Twin Lakes. But um, folks seem to accept that they have to wear masks, they have to sanitize. Uh, we put a lot of things in place here within the hospital to make sure that patients as well as visitors did that, restricted visitation, those kinds of things. So everybody's accepted it well, and, and we're doing good. Um, and of course, I, I live about three miles, I'm sorry, about three hours away from Twin Lakes, so I get to see things between uh, here and what's going on in Eastern Kentucky as well. And uh, it seemed to be fairly consistent across the state in the way people have accepted what they have to do in order to uh, meet the pandemic requirements. So so it was interesting because you just mentioned it at the beginning of this, uh, you know, large urban areas, large medical centers, big academics. When you talk about healthcare generally, you know, especially healthcare IT, people immediately attract to those big organizations, you know, the Mayos, the Hopkins, the Partners, the Kaisers. You spent your whole career in the smaller organizations. Some would refer to them as rural or small. Um, 
And that's really been your forte. Why have you focused on that? Oh, uh, <laughs> it may be difficult for me to, to answer that other than from the perspective that uh, that's where my heart is. Um, I, I grew up uh, in Northeastern Kentucky and uh, have lived there most of my life. So, you know, I'm not real familiar with the things that go on in, in the larger cities and, and the larger towns. And, uh, you know, when it comes to healthcare in those areas, I know it's different than it is here in the rural uh, America, uh, especially rural Kentucky. I understand the, uh, the, the folks that come into these smaller community hospitals where I am now, where I've been at a couple of hospitals in the past 25 years, uh, you know, they are family, they're farmers, uh, they are small town workers. I understand them and I understand uh, their healthcare needs and their needs for information and uh, the way they think, or at least I hope I know the way they think because uh, to me, we're a little bit different than some of the folks in the urban areas. And I, I have tried over the years to manage the way I think uh, people in the rural areas want to be understood and how they want their communications to happen. Um, and I've often said it, and, and uh, I'll say it here, you know, as we've worked through uh, public policy, which you mentioned earlier, uh, as we work through public policy, I've talked to different mediums about uh, being able to see patients via telemedicine. And to me, the farmer's office is his tractor cab. And if the doctor can sit there in his office and see that farmer in their tractor cab, they're both in their office. And I just heard it mentioned in the past few days that somebody was seen uh, you know, on a, on a bulldozer and he was using his iPhone. Well, that was very possible. And it saved that bulldozer operator half a day's time because he was able to see the doctor from his office, which was the bulldozer cap. I think the same kind of thing about uh, farmers because that's where they are, that's where they work. Um, and, and if they can be taken care of from their medical needs, where they're working, so much the better. So, so let's talk a little bit about scale because so many of the requirements of health IT do not take into any account size, complexity, financial resources, and the scale that's there. You have just as much the same responsibility for cybersecurity, for interoperability, for all the things that came out of the High Tech Act. They didn't care if you were a small single facility. They didn't care if you were you know, one of the biggest health systems in the country. Requirements were requirements. How do you manage that scale with the scarce resources you have? You bring up a good point. And uh, let me go back to one of your earlier questions. And, and that is, uh, you know, why have I focused more on uh, the smaller rural hospital type uh, healthcare providers? From the standpoint that we're in these uh, smaller uh, facilities, we have to be more of a jack of all trades. So we have to know what goes on in so many different areas. Uh, you know, as a CIO, uh, during my 25 years, I have not had, you know, somebody that was an expert in all the different areas that have been required, uh, especially in the past 10 years because of high tech and, uh, you know, the, the requirements for HIPAA, the requirements for interoperability, the requirements for cybersecurity. So I've had to learn a lot of those things by myself. And, and frankly, 
uh, I have learned a lot from other CIOs and from other people who are experts in those areas. Uh, I rely on them to learn what I have to do. And I try to convey that same type of message to everyone that works for and with me uh, through these organizations that they essentially have to become uh, adept at doing multiple different things. Uh, we may become experts in a certain area, but we certainly can't work just in one area. We have to uh, know a lot about a lot of different uh, functions that go on within the organization. And in, in my mind, it does a better job of making us team players because we have to rely on each other. Uh, not just within IT, but throughout the organization, because I'm I'm heavily reliant on the director of health information management here, as well as the uh, infection control folks, uh, as, and also in the clinical quality, because together we're doing a better job of making sure that we're keeping up with the, with the requirements, as well as keeping up with what is best for us to do to take care of the patients. So... So one of those teams that you've been on, um, you know, dating both of us now a little bit for a long time, uh, we've been there since almost the very beginning of this is, is our public policy steering committee at Chime. You have been an instrumental part of that, Max, actually one of our award winners as a public policy leader as part of that process. You know, kind of describe to us, not political as in all the strife and polarization going on, but the political environment from HIT, kind of what you think is going on at that macro level. Uh, and some of the pressures that we're feeling right now from a public policy perspective. Um, let me make sure I understand the, the question specifically. Are we talking about what's going on from the federal level and yeah, what's coming out of Washington? Level, yeah, mostly the federal level. We've got the stuff with information blocking going on and patient ID and just the stuff that's security, all that stuff that's just happening in Washington right now, it seems like at one time. Um, from the information blocking standpoint, uh, you know, in, in, in my experience when I worked here in Kentucky, uh, we, we have a fairly robust health information exchange within the state that is actually run by the state government. Uh, and, and I will have to say that in discussions with my counterparts across the country, I think we've done a fairly good job here in Kentucky in making sure that the information can be exchanged. I don't see uh, information blocking as a huge issue here in our local area. Uh, I, I hear there are some of those kinds of issues in, in the more urban markets where there's more competition for patients, uh, which I can understand that because if you have uh, you know two or three hospitals within a 10 mile radius, it, it's much more contentious for the patients than it is here where we're the only provider within 30 miles. So I understand uh, the competition there and uh, the behind the scenes wants or needs to keep your patients and not let them go elsewhere. Uh, I, I see over the last two or three years though, or at least uh, based on what I'm seeing from our health information exchange and, and doing the interactions there that uh, that seems to be going by the wayside. Uh, we, we have healthcare providers that are much more adept and interested in sharing patient information and, and making sure that it's uh, available and as seamless as possible uh, when a patient wants to go from one healthcare provider to the other. Um, I, I mean, the other things that are coming out of Washington, we're, we're 
the, the biggest issue that we've had from the smaller provider standpoint is uh, the, the changes in the regulations uh, that come out of uh, health and human services, uh, wh whether that be you know directly from them or one of the agencies. The biggest issues are, are waiting until the last minute to issue those uh, changes that we have to adhere to. And sometimes, uh, as a couple of occasions in the past 10 years or so that we worked as, they kind of do it after the fact. But if we know months or a year or so in advance that we have to meet those deadlines, then we can do that. But we also, especially for the smaller providers, have to rely upon our software vendors to be able to put those changes into their software suites or their systems and make sure that we can get those loaded and tested and functional by the deadline. Uh, and that, that to me has been one of the biggest frustrations that we've had is trying to meet those deadlines when the, the software vendor can't do the programming changes. Um, and I won't go into you know, the intricacies that they have to do with because uh, one change in one aspect affects so many different areas. So I hope that kind of answers the question that you're asking, but uh, those have been some of the things that I've dealt with from uh, the Washington standpoint. And yes, I have been involved with the public policy. Uh, I remember when we first got it started back in 08, 09, and uh, uh, I applaud CHIME for the work that has gone on over the past 10, 12 years in public policy slash advocacy and, and the work that we've done there. It's been great. Well, we're not gonna intentionally pick on one of your local Kentucky politicians, but uh, one of these subjects that we have, you can't, can't not go there, I guess it's a double negative, but you have to go there is a better way to put it. Uh, and that's patient identification and the work we've been trying for so long to get the ability for patients to be accurately identified and matched in systems. And uh, yeah, we've been battling one of those long-standing rules that are out there that uh, goes back to a few years back from one of your local guys there. Um, so kind of what do you think is going on with in today's world with patient identification and really getting that to where we can focus on the right patient the right ways? I have, I have worked about 25 years for three different hospital organizations and every one of them has had issues with this very topic. Um, it, it, it takes quite a bit of time to make sure that patients that are in the system are properly identified and in the, in the area where I am, uh, especially in the rural areas, it, it's not as much as we have a lot of people that are you know, moving in and out of the area, but we have a lot of people that are junior, senior, uh, in some cases, number one, two, and three. And I had a person that worked with me while I was at St. Clair that um, someone married into her family that he, he was number six with the same name. Uh, and when you have that in people coming in that you know present themselves, you don't know which one you're getting whenever you pull that information up and, and try to pick the right patient. Uh, as I've talked to the uh, Director of Health Information Management here at Twin Lakes, uh, she doesn't know exactly uh, that the number of uh, records that we have where the names are the same, but she's saying that you know somewhere in the five to 10% range that we have issues with proper identification. And this is a small hospital and a, and a relatively small community, but I've seen the same kind of thing. And the, these are uh, folks that we know 
So in this case, it's probably a little easier because we know junior from senior, or we know number three from number five. Uh, but I can only imagine what it's like in the more rural area, I'm sorry, in the more urban areas where uh, they don't know the differences in the people because they don't see them that often. It, it's a huge issue. And it, frankly, it is something that in today's world, and especially with today's technology, um, we, and, and I know from the public policy standpoint, that this is just something that's being stopped at the federal government level that that needs to be removed. Um, and I know, sir, I know there's, it's a lot more difficult than me just saying it needs to be removed, but there is capabilities there for us to properly identify people uh, in today's world. And I mean, I, I've had a social security number all my life uh, and I'm just using that as an example. We, we can have a patient ID that can go with us throughout our life and, and it makes moving from one healthcare provider to another much more seamless and making sure that my record as Randy McLeese follows me wherever I go. And I have been to four different provider groups over the last two months, and they're not sharing information uh, the way they should because it's more difficult for them. Um, and, and, you know, these are just routine checkups. I can only imagine what it would be like if, uh, you know, I had to be seen somewhere because of an accident or an emergency or something like that. And uh, they not know anything about me and not be able to get my information quick enough if I had to show up in an ER. And I don't want that. Um, and, and I think I speak for the majority of people, or at least I hope I do, and the people I've talked to, they think healthcare already shares their information and, and we don't readily share it, uh, but we could uh, if we have the proper identification for each one of us. So that brings up a, another great subject here that, and really how it's uh, impacted or even focused on in, in the smaller and rural organizations. And that's cybersecurity because it's just as big a threat for a single facility as it is for a giant health system. And so what's your approach to leading cybersecurity in these smaller organizations when the threat's just as big, if not bigger? What we've had to do uh, in, in the more rural facilities, and, and we've done this uh, for the past two, three, four years now, because the requirements are becoming so much more stringent and the technology is becoming so much more advanced. One of the bigger issues that we've got here in the rural areas is that we cannot find the expertise locally to handle the security the way it needs to be handled in today's world. So what we're having to do is uh, we're, we're having to outsource that. We're having to find an individual or an organization that can work on, on and within our systems that can maintain that vigilance on our security and make sure that it is functional, that it meets requirements and that it keeps us safe and secure. Now, and, and this is something that I've talked about uh, in other uh, forums also, just being able to hire somebody like that. First of all, we can't find the person here locally. And secondly, if we can find them, we can't afford them. Uh, because uh, again, I, as I've mentioned, I've been in three different organizations and the pay is not what it is in the more urban areas. So, you know, we can't afford them. Uh, the, the professional security folks, and we, but we've got to have them. Uh, and I've talked to 
different organizations about how would you do that uh, if we were to hire you for X number of hours per week or X number of hours per month, just to monitor our security and tell us what we're doing right, tell us what we're doing wrong, uh, monitor uh, all of our servers on all of our computers to make sure if somebody began that you alert us immediately, that you uh, take care of making sure that it gets blocked or shut down our network or whatever we have to do. Uh, but we need somebody that can do that 24 seven because we don't, <coughs> none of the organizations I've been involved with, do we have staff on site and functional 24 seven? We can't afford to do that. Uh, we, we just, after hours, we have people on call, but they're just not on, on staff and not on duty 24-7. So maybe a great collaborative opportunity, maybe for companies to think about from a managed services perspective of, of how to help these smaller organizations out uh, and really kind of aggregate some of those things for you. That's, that's a great idea. It, it is, and I've had some discussions along those lines of, of cybersecurity managed services, uh, but it's a great idea and I'm, I'm seeing some offerings uh, becoming available along those lines. Awesome. So let's let's talk a little bit about this world of advanced technology that is rushing upon us. Things such as um, AI, business in, um, uh, analytics, um, robotics, drones, all these things that maybe seem a little far off for a smaller or rural organization, but the reality is they're really being incorporated into products today and others. How do you approach this, I don't know, tidal wave of new technology that is emerging on, on everyone in healthcare uh, that maybe we've never seen before in our careers, that all of a sudden now it's just everywhere at one time. How do you approach even trying to figure all this out? From the uh, rural standpoint, uh, it, it's it's a bit difficult because we don't have the depth of staff to uh, to get into the the intricacies of, of what has to happen there and do some of the research. So it behooves us as smaller providers to partner with somebody that does that kind of work and can provide that knowledge to us. Um, and, and frankly, that's happening at Twin Lakes right now, as in there's an active pursuit of a partnership uh, to the point that it uh, may well be a merger just because uh, th this organization has realized that they cannot continue to stand alone and provide the level of services that patients need and demand um, on their own. Uh, financially, the organization is, has done great over the years. Uh, but they realize that patients are requiring more than can be provided just through the local organization. So they're becoming part of a larger organization that can provide uh, some of that uh, knowledge and skill that comes through artificial intelligence, through uh, uh, population health, uh, and can provide some of the depth, uh, not just from an IT standpoint, but also from a medical standpoint, and also provide some of the services that otherwise couldn't be afforded to uh, a 75 bed hospital in a smaller community. Uh, and, and those are some of the things that over the years that rural hospitals have to learn to be able to do is to, is to partner with a larger organization that can uh, provide that. And, and that doesn't always mean a merger. Uh, that can just be, you know, 
friendly partnerships uh, where you have uh, knowledge transfer. Uh, and I know at St. Clair, uh, St. Clair was a huge partner at the University, excuse me, University of Kentucky Healthcare, and uh, relied heavily on the University of Kentucky's knowledge depth. Uh, and there was a lot of knowledge transfer there. Uh, St. Clair is a teaching facility. Twin Lakes is, is somewhat of a teaching facility, but nowhere near as active. So uh, that's how we have to uh, keep up with those things. It, it's just through learning from, I hate to put it this way, but learning from big brother, so to speak. Uh, and this is not the government. In this case, this is more of a, a bigger organization that has the knowledge and depth to be able to do the things that all of us have to know how to do. So, so Randy, yourself, you, you are a thought leader. So most people, again, they think CIO and thought leaders, they think, oh, it must be from the big academic places. You've been just as strong a thought leader and um, really strong uh, help in shaping opinion, both in public policy and just the industry as a whole, and probably done as many interviews, if not more than most that were out there. So there really isn't anything in scale there that doesn't allow somebody to really lead at the level you are. So how do you stay current? How do you stay relevant in these times when the world just keeps on changing? Oh, Russ, I've noticed over the last year or two that it's getting more and more difficult because it just seems like the, the, the deluge of information is just increasing. I've, you know, for the 25 years, I've tried to read what I could online. I've tried to read uh, printed material, uh, attending forums and talking to other, uh, not only CIOs, but other folks there that I can learn from. Uh, and, and that to me is the way I have to, to stay current. It's just the way I do it. Uh, and I think we as individuals, someone have to choose the best way that we can do it to stay current. But I think we have to stay current uh, because if we don't, then... Uh, I, we're just going to be gobbled up, so to speak. Uh, and I'm just being kind of blunt with the, the way I, I say it, but uh, if we don't stay current, then we're going to be totally out of a job and out of business. So um, those are the methods that I use. And uh, I, I use a lot of online forums. Uh, and I say online, but that, that could be, you know, talking like this, or this could be in time focus groups or, webinars or college live, uh, the same kind of thing. There, there's multiple different ways to get that type of information. Also, other uh, organizations as well provide a lot of educational opportunity, HEMS or ACHE or HEMA, uh, and just being involved with those enough to get the, the knowledge that they provide through educational opportunities. Uh, and, and to me, that's the only way we can keep up with it. And, and it um, I spent a lot of waking hours doing those kinds of things uh, because I just feel it's necessary to keep up. Well, I'm, I'm going to dive into a little personal question because people always love to know how somebody got to where they are. Um, but your start in the professional world is a lot different than anyone else's. Uh, you spent your time uh, dealing with some rocks and dirt to begin with in your, in your early careers. Tell us a little bit about your start in the professional world. Um, it, it's difficult to, uh, to think that I, I graduated college the first time 40 years ago. Um, so <laughs> I'm thinking, am I that old? 
um, but uh, you know, I, I did start out in the professional world uh, as a geologist. Uh, my uh, original degree is a Bachelor of Science in Geology, and that, that's really where I started. Uh, and I actually started, and I don't say much about this one, but it, it was just a short stint as a, as a coal geologist in eastern Kentucky. And uh, I moved from there to work for an oil and gas company for 15 years. And uh, I, I did the geology work, uh, but uh, about halfway through that 15 years, uh, this was in the early days of computers. Uh, you know, I graduated, like I said, in college 40 years ago. And uh, I was in the business about a year and a half when we got our first computer. Uh, it was the old Radio Shack uh, TRS-80 with an eight inch floppy disk. And it intrigued me. Um, and because of changes in the company, I kind of uh, stepped back just a little bit and uh, didn't do much with uh, computer technology for five or six years. But in 1987, um, and I've told this uh, story in the past, our vice president of exploration had gone to a, a trade show and on site, he purchased a geological software uh, as well as uh, a plotter, which is a large scale printer. And when he brought it back to the office, he brought it to me and said, I want you to learn to run this. Um, so it was kind of trial by fire. Uh, I had no instructions or anything like that. So I had to learn not only the software and how to use it, but also the hardware. Uh, and I know what it's like when it comes up, comes up and says, do you want to reformat? You say yes, and you have no backups. Um, so I, I grew from that. That started in 1987. I grew from that into uh, database management and uh, transferring spatial data from a database to display on maps. Uh, and that grew over the years and I, I get into database design and uh, that company again reorganized and, and uh, I was, my position was eliminated. So I went looking and that's when I came into healthcare. Uh, and that was uh, January of 1996 when I came into healthcare. Uh, so it was a, it was a learning experience and moving from one industry to the other, uh, to me, it took me the best part of a year uh, before I felt like I was really making any contributions. And of course, in 1996, uh, we were starting to look at Y2K. And by 98, of course, we were in earnest in Y2K. And uh, I led the hospital's effort in making sure all of our systems, uh, regardless of whether they were biomedical systems or whether IT systems, to make sure all of, all of them were Y2K uh, compatible. Uh, so, and it just, uh, you know, my responsibilities grew from that uh, installation of an ambulatory EMR system uh, and going through the entire RFP and the due diligence process for that. Uh, then we, you know, with a couple of years after that, we ended up changing to an EMR. That was right after high tech. Uh, and uh, we, we saw some opportunity at that point to install electronic medical record system in the hospital. And we took that opportunity and, and uh, we went through about a 30 month process to install that EMR going from paper to uh, electronic records. And that was also about the time that I was very active in CHIME uh, because that while we were in the midst of that's when I was elected to the time board. So um, it, it's been a long 25 year venture in healthcare, but I have thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, 
And, and as you're aware, uh, I was at that one organization for 21 years and I was given the opportunity for an early retirement and I took it, uh, but yet I, I can't get it out of the blood. Uh, I'm like so many others, you, you, you just have it and you want to continue and that's what I'm doing. So uh, I still yeah. drink. I, I do find it interesting that good CIOs don't have any idea how to retire. So there are skill sets there that we can still learn maybe a little bit better. So one last question as we close our time up, Randy, as we look to the future and in, in, in this crazy world of COVID we're in right now, you could say future is really just, you know, a few weeks, but maybe a little bit farther out than that for, you know, maybe discounting and, and getting a little past the COVID, which we know we will. You know, what do you think healthcare looks like over the next, say, 36 months, five years? What do you really think we're going to see is the, is the big transformative changes in healthcare? I think one of the biggest changes that we can see is if our administrative level folks realize that uh, they can send more people home and let them work from home. Um, I was talking to someone yesterday that worked for another health organization. And as we were talking about this, we we're saying, you know, 10, 20, maybe even as many as, uh, as much as 30% of the workforce can work from home. Well, as I think about that, I'm thinking, you know, if you have people work from home, then in the long run, are the healthcare facilities going to need as many office buildings? So, you know, you start thinking about things like that. Then you start thinking about, well, have lower operating costs. I'm not going to get rid of the hospital because we still need those uh, beds for people that are uh, intense enough that they need that hands-on care. I mean, we're still going to have the nurses and the doctors and, and the lab techs and radiology folks and those kinds of folks. They're still going to have to be there, but there, there's so many back office people, uh, billing and HIM, uh, you know, those kinds of folks can work from wherever. It's all going to be online. I'm not sure that that realization is setting in yet with our um, administrative folks, uh, the executive teams, but I think it's going to start here real soon. And I think the pandemic has really thrust that at us. Uh, and, and we're beginning to see how that can happen. And as you're aware, I, I mean, if you need those video conferences, technology has really leaped and bounds over the last five or six, seven months in being able to do the things that we need to do. Uh, and, and we've seen that here through China, whether it's through focus groups or, uh, or college lab or webinars or wherever, we've been able to do those things. And I think the companies that provide that technology have really advanced it. Uh, during this pandemic. Well, Randy, uh, it is always a pleasure to spend time with you. You are truly one of the Chime heroes in so many ways. You just give and give and give. And uh, on behalf of all your peers, the Chime organization, we just say a, a true thank you for what you've meant to our organization, but more importantly, what you've meant to the industry over these uh, 25 plus years. You are truly, a, truly a special person. We love spending time with you. Thanks for being on the program today. Thank you. I appreciate it, Russ. I appreciate the opportunity. And I just uh, hope we continue uh, the, the good work that we're doing and that we advance the technology as quickly and uh, as effectively as we possibly can. Absolutely. Well, and we'd also like to thank you, our wonderful listeners, for listening to this episode of our podcast program for digital health leaders. As always, you can listen to this program and all of ours on chimecentral.org forward slash media or at Apple or Spotify. But for now, please take care, 
Stay home if you can. If you can't wear your mask, be safe and God bless.